Coming up on Tech News Weekly, I, Micah Sargent, am here. Jason Howell is out, but don't worry, I've got a great show planned for you. First, we talk to Craig Hockenberry of the Icon Factory uh, and also the creator of the first Twitter app. And yeah, he's here to talk about the fact that Twitter has closed off uh, API access for some third-party clients. Then Dan Morin of Six Colors stops by to talk about all the new announcements from Apple, the MacBooks, the Mac Mini, the HomePod. It's a lot to cover. And then it's time for some stories of the week. First, about how OpenAI uh, hired a company who hires Kenyan workers to filter through the cruft and the awfulness on the internet to try and make chat GPT a little more palatable. Then I round things out with a little conversation about the Steam Deck and how there have been so many improvements since it was first introduced and Amazon Smile coming to a close. Stay tuned. This is a show you don't want to miss. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This This is Tech News Weekly, episode 269, recorded Thursday, January 19th, 2023. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Decisions. Don't let complexity block your company's growth. Decisions no-code, rules-driven process automation software provides every tool needed to build custom workflows, empowering you to modernize legacy systems, ensure regulatory compliance, and renew the customer experience. Visit decisions.com slash twit to learn how automating anything can change everything. And by Drata. Too often, security professionals are undergoing the tedious, arduous task of manually collecting evidence. With Drata, say goodbye to the days of manual evidence collection and hello to automation. All done at Drata speed. Visit drata.com slash twit to get a demo and 10% off implementation. And by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. This week, Jason Howell is not here, but I, Micah Sargent, am here, and we have a very topical way to start off the show today. Uh, joining us to uh, kick things off is the Icon Factory's own Craig Hockenberry. Welcome to the show, Craig. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Micah. Yeah, yeah, it's good to get you on because we've got to talk about something, uh, and that something is Twitter. Um, before we kind of break into what's going on right now, I was hoping that for folks who might not know, if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your history with Twitter. Yeah, my history with Twitter is started 16 years ago. Uh, we made the first Twitter app. Uh, it was originally on Mac OS. Then we made the first... Uh, Twitter app for iOS, and we made the first Twitter app for the iPad. We've got a long history of making first things uh, for <laughs> Twitter. Um, and yeah, I've, uh, yeah, been, it, it, there's a team behind the app now, but it, mm-hmm. it was originally uh, my, my creation. 
Yeah, I uh, read through your story over on uh, Furbo.org about the origin of Tweet and kind of learning about um, <laughs> what was a shower thought, right? I mean, the, the uh, app was a shower well, thought. The, t- t- the, the, uh, the Twitter just announced the API and I was, you know, we all started using it in the, uh, the web browser and I thought, well, this would be great as an app. So... I was in the shower and actually had the name for Twitterific in the shower wow. and then sat down. I started coming up with the uh, the API and or using the API and had a little prototype. And then our awesome designers at the company took that and made it look great. And you know, in, in, we had our first app yeah. and released that in early 2007. Wow. So, and I mean, when you're saying this, I think that it may not even be driving home enough. When you say you created the first Twitter app for macOS and then later the first Twitter app for iPad, the first Twitter, you mean that you predated Twitter's own apps for those clients? Yeah, too. yeah. yeah. We, well, in fact, that's how the word tweet came about, right? And the Bluebird. Um, we had this app and... We started using it, and I had just put a placeholder icon in, in the app. So one of our designers came up with this uh, guy by the name of David David Lanham, came up with the, uh, the the blue bird, and we put that in the app, and it was immediately just it was a hit. Everybody loved that app icon. And at the same time, I was thinking about nouns and verbs for, like, menus and things like this, you know, post what, right? You know, the, mm-hmm. you know. We had to, you know, refresh something. Um, and originally I called them twits <laughs> before your show <laughs> even existed. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it, it, one of the uh, one of the people that was using that early prototype was actually an engineer over at Twitter who said, you know, you've got this blue bird. Well, you know, why don't you call them tweets? And I was wow. like, I was like, oh, man, why didn't we think of that? And. You know, the, the rest is history, right? It's it's in the Oxford English Dictionary now. It, that was right. that was a pretty wild thing, right? The first time I heard I heard somebody mention tweet on you know on a on a newscast, it was like, uh, okay, this is gonna be around for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing is your your creation, your team's creation is part of the the bedrock of Twitter itself. And that's what yeah. makes what has happened uh, just this week, all the more glaring and all the more ridiculous. Uh, can you tell us about the change that Twitter made this week that affected some third-party clients? Yeah, the, basically we have a little uh, handshake that it, it establishes a secure connection. You know, we have some some token that we provide to Twitter and they check that token, make sure it's coming from us. And then they reply with another token that we look at and go, oh, yep, that's coming from Twitter. And then you've got your secure, secure connection. Um, they broke that process, right? We send our stuff to them. They say, nope, you don't have access. And we can't proceed from that point on. So they, the suspension has basically uh, kneecapped us uh, um, and there, there's nothing we can do about it. 
Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that's uh, one of the, the big questions that I had is how did you even find out that this change had taken place? You know, did Twitter's developers reach out to you? Did you try accessing what? Twitter through? How, how did this happen for you? <laughs> well, there's very few people left at Twitter in their uh, developer relations group, number mm-hmm. one. Number two, there was no attempt on their part to contact us, to give us any kind of a heads up that this was happening. It literally was somebody... Uh, I forget who it was, but you know, one of our customers said, "Hey, I can't log in." And then that got that word got to one of our engineers, a uh, colleague of mine, uh, Sean Heber, and he says, "Yeah, can you go check the Twitter dashboard?" And I checked the, the dashboard, and I saw this big red banner that said, "Your app is suspended." And wow, that that is all we know at this point. They have they, even they, you to know, this they day, say, oh, we're breaking the rules, but. What rules? Right? Yeah, because you've no, been doing it for this long. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. You know, over 16 years, we've complied with a lot of rule changes that they've made. Everything from, you know, how you display a tweet, you know, which ways you authorize with the service. There, there have been numerous changes over the years that we comply with happily because we're, you know, we get value out of it. Our customers get value out of it. Twitter gets value out of it. Mm-hmm. So... For them just to come and say, you know, you're done and not say why or any give us, it's really kind of offensive to, that they didn't even bother to give us some warning because it, it came as a surprise to us, came as a surprise more importantly to our customers, mm-hmm. right? All they see is an error message. Their thing is not working. That generates a problem for us as far as customer support is concerned. It generates a problem with the, you know, subscriptions, you know, first thing Apple says when you're, when you, you know, want to retire a subscription is you need to give your customers a heads up. Well, guess what? We can't. Because you yourself didn't even get a heads up about this. I mean, the fact that you had to find out through a customer and then even still had to go in and look at it to finally see it on the dashboard with just, this is the day that it's taking place. I mean, I, I, why do you think Twitter made this change? Well, let me just say that narcissistic only think about themselves. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And by that, uh, the the Twitter app itself, uh, the first party client that came, you know, after um, is the one that they are most focused on, it seems at the moment. Uh, I mean, you are obviously a long time developer of a third party Twitter client, and I imagine have chatted with other folks who make third party Twitter clients. When you look at it, is it a sizable portion of Twitter's user base that does not use the first party app? I mean, is this really a money-making opportunity for Twitter by closing down these third parties? Because that's kind of the the first responses that you see from folks who are trying to think of it from the business side, say, well, those third party users weren't getting the experience that Twitter wanted that had these ads and then they had this, that, and the other. And so Twitter's yeah. trying to make itself more... But is that really as much of an impact as uh, some argue? From a number of people, it's Mm -hmm. it's probably a very small percentage, Mm -hmm. very small. Um, 
from an influ influence point of view, it's probably much larger, right? A lot of the people mm -hmm. that have been on service for a long time who contribute a lot to the service have been using it since the beginning and got used to using a third-party client, right? They rely on that third-party client. There are journalists. There are influential tech people. There are a lot of people that we've heard, especially, you know, this situation has brought a lot of people out and we've seen a huge outpouring of support for us because everybody looks at this and says the same thing. It's like, what the hell, right? This is not the way you, you do things with a web service. Right. This is, you know, it, it, there's always a sunsetting phase, everything, you know, whether you're, you know, it, it, I, I could, I could spend hours going over examples, but we all, know, I mean, right? yeah, you see, everybody, you see, yeah. Things, you see those blog posts that say, Oh, we're shutting down the service in, you know, April of 2023. Right. Right. And if, if we've got something like that from Twitter, we would have dealt with it. Right. It's like, it's the, the, it's bottom, the bottom line is it's their business. They can do what they want. Right. But you don't treat other people like we're being treated now. It's really that simple. Absolutely. Exactly. I mean, it, it, I imagine if uh, a little, uh, you know, a, a young person down the road opened up a lemonade, lemonade stand, you go to the lemonade stand and they're like, oh, I'm just going to be here for the next uh, three days, but then we're going away. <laughs> even even that little lemonade stand has a little bit of a heads up that the Twitter isn't provided yeah. for a huge number of people. And these these businesses that have based a lot of, of their existence on this platform. It is, it's awful. And that's, that leads me to ask the question of, uh, cause I noticed that there were some third party services that were more, uh, business oriented that did not receive, uh, this API cutoff. What do you, what are your thoughts there? Why do some, uh, clients still get to access the API, but, uh, these, you know, you and and um, Tweetbot and others are not able to access Twitter. Honestly, we, I got no idea. Mm -hmm. I, my only speculation at this point is that there's some use unpublished usage level that we're going over, right? You know, it's maybe if you've got you know a hundred thousand tokens or hundred fifty thousand tokens. I you know I don't know. Don't absolutely don't know, but I suspect that they have some sort of metric on their system somewhere where they said, "Oh, anything above this certain level, we're going to just—they're gone." Mm. Yeah, I, that but makes... that's purely speculation. Again, we know nothing. We know no—we've seen the same information that you've seen. <sighs> that's, I think, exactly. the, the most wild thing to me. <laughs> yeah. you don't yeah, have yeah. any more information than anyone else, and that's why I have to ask you, uh, as we kind of round things out, in your opinion. Is there a future in which Twitter recovers from these platform changes, be it with its current leadership or even new leadership in place? Has Twitter done too much damage uh, in the different choices that it's made thus far uh, to recover from this? Yeah, that that's a really great question. Um, and again, I, I look back at the early days of Twitter, right? Mm -hmm. The thing that established it early on were things like, South by Southwest, WWDC, very developer-centric kind of things, right? People that are really into tech got into Twitter, right? And then it went more mainstream. Well, guess what's happened right now? That same group of people, in a matter of weeks, 
has moved over to things like Mastodon, you know, mm-hmm. microblog, you know, some other, you know, the, some other service, right? They've abandoned Twitter. That does not bode well for the company. Right. The, the yeah, as you as you point out, the most influential users, the the most active users, uh, yeah. the people who like the platform actually are They're leaving bailing. it. Yeah, they're bailing, right? And I, I mean, I'm not going to post on Twitter anymore. And people no. love some of the things I say, right? They, I've, I've picked up, you know, thousands and thousands of followers on Mastodon in the last, you know, week. Um, it, it, it's, it's clear to me that people are moving away from Twitter. Mm-hmm. They're, they're honestly, they're screwed in the long term in my mind. They're, they're. It, you know, as I, as I said at the end of the uh, that blog post, you know they're they're going to be a forty four billion dollar version of MySpace. Ooh! <laughs> if there was ever an insult that really drives it home, that's the one. Um, I know we're running out of time. I did want to ask if you can tell us: uh, Is the Icon Factory working on a Mastodon client? The answer to that is is. Part of this surprise, right? We had no advance notice. You know, we plan our projects at a time. And honestly, we have a contractual commitment until the spring of this year. So we can't right now. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, 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 that's the thing. The business works, you know, we we all schedule things out, right? You plan ahead. Twitter is not planning ahead. No, it seems day to day the the decisions are being they're, made for sure. They're, 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 they are literally flying by the seat of their pants, and that doesn't get you very far. Oof. Um, well, Craig Hockenberry, I want to thank you so much for carving out some time. I know things are very busy for you right now. Yeah. Um, it, it, if folks want to follow you online <laughs> over on Mastodon, uh, where where do they go to do that? What's that now? I missed that last question. Oh, did I cut out? Uh, if folks want to follow you online over on Mastodon, where should they go to to do that? Uh, I'm I'm Chalkenberry at uh, Mastodon dot social. Awesome. So, yeah, it would. We're you know Icon Factory is the, our blog. There has a bunch of information about where we've all moved to. So yeah, check out blog.iconfactory.com as well. Perfect. Well, thank you for your time. I appreciate it. And uh, obviously, I'm wishing you the best of luck with uh, your projects and uh, hope to see one from you for Mastodon in the future. Yeah, we'll do something interesting for sure. Uh, That's in our blood. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Great. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. All righty, folks. Up next, uh, Apple has made a series of announcements as opposed to an event. So we will be talking about the products it has announced this week. Before that, though, I do want to tell you about Decisions, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Uh, Decisions gives IT and business experts the tools to automate anything within their company All within one no-code platform, Decisions is proven to fix any business process and prepare you to withstand economic uncertainty. Recession resilience, those are the two R's. Recession resilience requires a deliberate management of resources and flexibility to adapt 
at a moment's notice. The Decisions no-code environment makes it easy for your team to collaborate, to build and adjust workflows, dynamic forms, and decisioning processes that fit your unique and ever-changing business needs. This is especially important with today's IT talent shortage. Decisions process automation software, it's a complete toolkit that allows developers and business users alike to build applications and automations with no-code required. Their no-code platform is powerful. It includes robust rules and workflow engines and a host of pre-built integrations that connect to any legacy system via API, all within a simple drag-and-drop visual interface design. It can be deployed on-prem or in the cloud. Companies were caught flat-footed at the onset of the pandemic, but Decisions customers were fully equipped to respond. One of the country's largest private banks built an entire PPP loan application process for small businesses affected by COVID-19 in just two days. Two days! They were the first to market, issuing $1 billion in loans before their competitors even got started. Decisions lets you customize workflows to automate the small decisions, producing faster results with greater accuracy, allowing your team to focus on the important decisions. You can scale your business to better serve your customers while reducing operational costs and saving your team valuable time. One example of how decisions automation software can help is Otis Elevator. You have probably heard of Otis. Uh, The Otis Elevator implemented decisions to run daily pulse checks across the 2 million units operating globally. So in sending out those pulse checks, they find these potential problems before they occur. They avoid downtime. They manage their service technicians efficiently. So if you happen to be riding in a notice elevator, you can rest assured you'll arrive safely to your destination. As a recession approaches, the durability of a business's foundation will directly impact its performance and ability to survive. So ask yourself, how strong is your foundation? Decisions Automation Platform provides the solution to any business challenge, automating anything and changing everything to improve your company's speed to market, financial growth, and operational success. They help industry leaders alleviate bottlenecks and automate pain points in their business so you can do what you do best and change the world. To learn more about Decisions No-Code Automation Platform and scope your free proof of concept, visit decisions.com slash twit. Head there, decisions.com slash twit. And thank you, Decisions, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, we are back from the break, and that means it is time to welcome back to the show uh, my pal and uh, Six Colors writer, Dan Morin. Welcome back to the show, Dan. Hey, Micah, good to see you. Good to see you too, sir. So, as we know, um, Apple held... Not an event, uh, but I guess held is not the right word then. Uh, posted a series of announcements about some <laughs> new products uh, that it has released. And uh, I thought we'd kick things off by talking about the new MacBook Pros, which have new M2 chips in them. Before we get into that, though, I am a little curious. <laughs> um, were you expecting an event or when you saw that these uh, announcements flew by, were you kind of like, oh, no, that makes sense that they, they did it this way? No, I think it makes sense that they did it this way. Uh, there was some rumor that they wanted to ship this stuff last fall and it just wasn't ready yet in terms of probably like how many they could actually produce. So I'm not surprised. And given the content of the announcement, it doesn't surprise me that it was an event. Um, I will say 
they did post like a almost kind of like a pseudo keynote video for them. Like that was like <laughs> 20 minutes long or so um, that had kind of all the hallmarks of their usual videos when they do their longer events. So clearly they felt like there there was something they wanted to talk about, but it wasn't necessarily something that they need to invite press out to look at. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so let's dig into it then. We've got a new uh, series of MacBook Pros, and we've also got new chips for those MacBook Pros. Um, what what are the kind of highlights of these new devices in terms of performance and capability? I mean, does this one finally also vacuum my floor or is it uh, just kind of a, a, a you know, a improvement on what we what we've had before? Oh, it, it won't vacuum your floor, but you could probably use it to slice some cheese or something. I don't know. It's they're pretty sharp <laughs> these days. Um, no, the, the, the hallmark of these is the new M2 Pro and M2 Max processors. Um, this is obviously a speed bump over the previous generation, which had the M1 Pro and the M1 Max processors. These are the higher end of Apple's own silicon chips, basically the ones that provide a little more oomph in their performance than the standard M1, M2, etc., um, Apple says these are 20% faster than the previous generation and provide up to 30% better graphics. Um, a footnote there that I thought was interesting. The 20% figure is particularly a little bit head scratching because these chips also have, uh, 20% more cores than their predecessor. So sure, you throw more cores at something, it's going to have better performance. We'll have to wait and see how the benchmarks actually bear out whether or not this really is just like faster cores overall or just more cores. Um, but those are the big things that are in here. Um, other than that, they're going to look pretty similar to the previous uh, generations of these laptops. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot in here that is, uh, you know, focused on really the high end of Apple's uh, market for doing creative work. Um, so in particular, I think the, the, the big improvements are, uh, um, the graphics GPU, um, aimed stuff. So it's got, uh, more potentially more cores and a larger cache. All this stuff is there to like help boost the amount of uh, performance you can get for really intensive tasks. Um, these, these, uh, chips also have a higher RAM ceiling than the previous models, which was one criticism of sort of the early Apple Silicon chips is the M1 was limited to just 16 gigabytes. Uh, these can now get up to 96 gigabytes with the M2 Max chip. So there's a lot more RAM you can thread at it. So if you're somebody doing really large, you know, photo editing or working on really high, um, high resolution video workflows, for example, that's someplace where all this performance will really come in uh, very handy for you. Nice. Now, in terms of, of the availability of these devices, um, are we expecting that they're going to be available sooner? Or is this another situation where you're going, uh, okay, we're talking about them now, but it's going to be a while before you can get your hands on them? Well, uh, they should be available pretty soon. I believe they are uh, available for order now, and I think they ship next week. I haven't checked recently to see what the current state of those are for deliveries, but last I haven't heard of any particular um, you know, delays in shipping. So it sounds like Apple is confident in their ability to deliver these in short order, which is also probably one of the reasons that they waited and to do it now as opposed to last fall. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, well, I think with that, especially the the battery life that they are quoting for this thing, it's pretty impressive. Um, right. And yeah. it'll be interesting to, to see after people have had a chance to use these for a while, how that all plays out. Now, the other 
uh, device that, or I guess, again, devices that Apple announced was or are the uh, Mac mini devices. This, of course, uh, got the upgrade to the new M2 and M2 Pro. Um, the M2 Max is likely left for uh, the studio as it has been in the past and then whatever is above that ultra um for the studio but for now the new mac mini is here um and this has uh, brought an end to the intel mac mini correct indeed yeah there was a bit of head scratching at first when apple moved the mac mini to the m1 processor it was one of the first macs to get moved to apple silicon along with the macbook air back in 2020 um but the yeah there was a high end intel configuration that was still available uh and people were wondering what the deal with that was and the supposition was that they just weren't ready to bring out a product that could sort of hit those higher performance thresholds uh, this time around, they have dealt with that by releasing basically two configurations. There's a third one, but it's we'll talk about that in a second. Um, there's basically a base model at $599, which is a $100 price drop. That is just the uh, M2 uh, processor. It's pretty similar, I believe, to the mid-range configuration on the M2 MacBook Air that Apple launched last year. Uh, and then there is a new higher M2 Pro configuration, which brings this uh, more powerful chip in there. The, the Pro sits in between, obviously, the M2 and the Max. Uh, it provides some better memory bandwidth, more cores, uh, and is overall just sort of one of those chips you want for a little more performance there. There is, as I mentioned, a mid-range configuration. It's basically the base configuration with a larger hard drive. Uh, I uh, don't know why they separated it as a separate configuration, since you can make the exact same thing by taking the base model and bumping up the storage. Um, so it's really the Mac. I think this is like essentially two Mac minis, really. It's like the base level Mac mini, which is a great product that uses sort of the base level chip. It's very affordable and it has a lot of performance in it. And then if you need something that sort of sits in between more that base Mac mini and the, the M1 iMac and then at the higher end, the Mac Studio, the M2 Pro Mac Mini kind of fits in that slot right there. It starts at 1300 and it provides a lot more power, more RAM, etc. So the it's kind of an interesting uh, structuring of the product line to see how they sort of fill in their gaps with the Mac Mini. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, minus, as you pointed out, that mid, that middle option, which is more <laughs> like, we don't yeah. trust that people are going to realize you can do this. So we will just make it its own option here. Um, I've seen a lot of folks, you know, get excited, uh, particularly about the, the Mac Mini and, uh, th- they have been great. Uh, for us as little studio machines for, for different purposes. Um, I think, I, I, you know, I, a lot of the nerds among us really like uh, the Mac Mini. And so seeing it get this love, as it were, uh, is pretty exciting stuff. Now, that was the first day of announcements. Um, <laughs> it, it started there, but then Apple decided to drop some more news uh, the following day. And this time it was about a resurrection. Uh, what, what happened? What did Apple resurrect? Steve Jobs is back. No, I'm just kidding. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, dear. No. Uh, yeah, we, we, whoever had the HomePod getting resurrected in their 2023 Apple bingo card, congratulations. You're a winner. Uh, Apple brought it back after five years, I believe. I believe the original first generation HomePod debuted in 2018, uh, around February. So almost five years to the month. 
Um, obviously, they discontinued it uh, about a year ago. Um, the HomePod Mini has been sort of the only thing in this smart speaker lineup for Apple at $99. And a lot of people wondering if there was room for a higher end speaker above that. And Apple's saying, yeah, absolutely. We're bringing back the HomePod. It'll retail for $299, which is $50 cheaper than it or- the original model started at, though I believe it later dropped to $299. Uh, mm-hmm. It's very similar to the first one. Uh, there are, yeah. Some I mean, it's even called the, the inside. It's yeah. even called the second generation. They didn't, you know, just go. Oh no, we never had a HomePod. This is the HomePod now. No. They, yeah, they it's it's the HomePod. It looks very similar to the original one. It's not like they've really revised it significantly. It's not like it has a you know a screen on it now or anything like that. Um, they changed some of the speaker uh, configurations in there and the microphone configurations. It's got a new chip inside of it instead of the previous one, which is powered by the A8 processor. This is powered by the S7, which is the same processor that powers the Series 7 Apple Watch. Uh, this does potentially, I mean, even though that is a watch processor as opposed to a phone processor, which the A8 was, it's so many, it's so much newer that it does power some new possibilities for capabilities like uh, they talk about sound recognition is one of the big features where it'll be able to hear a smoke detector or a carbon monoxide alarm going off and notify you. Um, they also claim it's got some other improvements when it comes to intelligence. Uh, some of that's a little harder to gauge because some of it seems to be software related. Uh, and they've also built in a couple new uh, hardware features in there. It has a thread radio, which the uh, HomePod Mini already had, which is a way of communicating with smart home tech. And it has both a humidity and temperature sensor in it, which it was then revealed the HomePod <laughs> Mini also has and will be getting <laughs> access to in a subsequent software update. So, yeah, uh, a weird announcement uh, kind of came out of nowhere. But I guess Apple is saying that it feels confident the smart speaker market is still something it wants to be involved in. I, yeah, I gotta tell you, it was, um, I remember I fix it, uh, finding that little sensor inside the HomePod mini and mm-hmm. wondering if it was just about, uh, you know, oh, people are going to put these in their bathrooms. So we need to make sure that if we, you know, you got to turn it off so that it doesn't, uh, fritz out whenever the humidity is too high or, um, I guess temperature for the sake of, of, whether the power supply, I don't know. They're all, yeah, or, yeah, there are right. all these People reasons why they might HomePod be there. Mini on their barbecue and it's going to be a mess. <laughs> I What's dare. fascinating to me that I've seen is um, folks have pointed out people who work on um, HomeKit applications uh, mm-hmm. right now, you are not able to view HomePods um, within third party uh, home kit apps. You can see them in your home. If you go to the home app that's made by, uh, Apple, mm. but you're not able to view those in third party apps. And so they're curious if those sensors within the home pod will be exposed yeah. to third party apps for use as automation. So I'm kind of curious about that, um, going forward to see what's going on there. And then the inclusion of the, uh, just like off the jump, because of course, iOS, your your iPhone can do uh, sound recognition stuff, but you right. have to specifically turn it on, and it's kind of complicated. Da, 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 da. But with it also, this, it also ahead. blocks uh, my experience with it. Trying to use it at one point, it you can't use it and the uh, Siri wake word simultaneously. Yeah, okay, <laughs> which funny, they must have fixed. Dan, 
<laughs> is that I was not going to say that because I couldn't remember if that was true in my head. But now that you've confirmed it, I remember that too. Yeah, I remember I didn't yeah. want to turn on sound recognition because it stopped the other thing. Um, but yeah, I'm curious. I, I imagine with the HomePod, because it's always plugged in, um, then you've got a better experience for, you, you know, it can it can pay attention to both and not take up a bunch of battery life is my my uh, thought on that, yeah. why it, you know, it works that way. So this automatic sound recognition is a great uh, thing, but I am curious about the integrations in terms of uh, third-party uh, HomeKit applications. So we'll have to see um, after folks kind of get their hands on these and get to play around with them a little bit more. Um, it's my understanding that the for folks who have HomePod Mini, they'll be able to add this uh, via a software update at some point. Do you know when? Yeah, that will be available on software update the... Consensus seems to be maybe next week, but certainly in the next couple weeks, the HomePod, the new second generation HomePod uh, arrives on February 3rd. So certainly by then, one would assume this software update would be out there. Got it. Got it. Um, anything else that stuck out to you uh, from this series of announcements that uh, folks should be paying attention to? Well, I mean, it's always interesting whenever Apple wants to announce some products and obviously it doesn't go to trade trade shows like CES because it feels like you can get that announcement uh, attention anyways. Um, this seems to me to feel a little bit like some deck clearing for Apple. I think there's there's stuff coming down the pike for Apple this year that's going to be more significant. These updates are are fairly small, as we said, like both the, the Macs and the HomePod are minor revisions to more or less existing products as opposed to breaking entirely new ground. So uh, I think this is Apple's way of saying like we're kind of getting our, our ducks in a row before we uh, kind of pull the curtain back on maybe some bigger product announcements later in the year. Yeah. Well, I guess we will be keeping our uh, our eyes out for what's next uh, from Apple. Uh, but thank you, Dan, for stopping by to talk about this uh, or these these new products. If folks want to follow you online and check out all of the work that you're doing, uh, where do they go to do that? Uh, you can check me out at sixcolors.com is where I do all my Apple-based writing. My personal website is over at dmorin.com, which has information on not only my tech work, but also my science fiction novels, uh, which you can check out there. And I'm on mostly on Mastodon these days. You can find me at, uh, at dmorin at mastodon.social, uh, where I do still some posting, not so much on Twitter anymore. <laughs> yeah, same, same. Um, thank you, Dan. We'll talk to you later. Thanks, Micah. Always a pleasure. Alrighty, folks, up next, uh, I've got a story of the week for you. Before we get there, though, I do want to tell you about Drata. We're bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Question for you. Is your organization finding it difficult to achieve continuous compliance as it's growing and scaling? Manual evidence collection might be slowing your team down. Well, as a leader in cloud compliance software by G2, Drata streamlines that SOC 2, ISO 27001, PCI DSS, GDPR, HIPAA, and other compliance frameworks providing 24-hour continuous control monitoring so you focus on scaling securely. With a suite of more than 75 integrations, Drata easily integrates with your tech stack through applications like AWS, Azure, GitHub, Okta, and Cloudflare. Countless security professionals from companies including Lemonade, Notion, 
and Bamboo HR have shared how crucial it's been to have Drata as a trusted partner in the compliance process. Drata is personally backed by SVCI, a syndicate of CISO angel investors from some of the world's most influential companies. Drata allows companies to see all of their controls and easily map them to compliance frameworks to gain immediate insight into overlap. Companies can start building a solid security posture, achieve and maintain compliance, and expand their security assurance efforts. Drata's automated dynamic policy templates support companies new to compliance and help alleviate hours of manual labor. Their integrated security awareness training program and automated reminders ensure smooth employee onboarding, and they are the only player in the industry to build on a private database architecture, meaning your data can never be accessed by anyone outside of your organization. All customers receive a team of compliance experts, including a designated customer success manager. I think that's so important. In addition, they have a team of former auditors who have actually conducted more than 500 audits and are available for support and counsel. With a consistent meeting cadence, they keep you on track to ensure that there are no surprises or barriers. Plus, Drata's pre-audit calls prepare you for when your audits begin. So you can uh, call, get that all set up. It's it's like a car loading before the big game. Uh, Drata's there to make sure you're ready to go for whenever that audit happens. With Drata's risk management solution, you can manage end-to-end risk assessment and treatment workflows. You can flag risks, score them, and then decide whether to accept, to mitigate, to transfer, or avoid them. Drata maps appropriate controls to risks, simplifying risk management and automating the process. Drata's Trust Center provides real-time transparency into security and compliance posture, which improves sales, security reviews, and better relationships with customers and partners. Say goodbye to manual evidence collection and hello to automated compliance by visiting drata.com slash twit. That's D-R-A-T-A dot com slash twit. Bringing automation to compliance at Drata Speed. Thank you, Drata, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, uh, f- story of the week for you here. And this one I think is, um, I, I, I know I was a little blown away by it when I first uh, came across it. So uh, Time, which of course makes Time Magazine, um, has published a piece. Uh, it was by Billy Perigo. Um, and I was going to have Billy on the show. Unfortunately, I had, was not able to uh, get in touch with Billy. Um, but I thought that this piece was too important to not talk about. And it is about open AI and chat GPT. So, OpenAI, of course, is the company that makes various uh, AI software and APIs and and basically AI technology. And in fact, is kind of at the forefront of AI technology uh, in terms of generative technology. So that's um, the DALL-E 2 image generation platform, the text generation platform called ChatGPT, and all of these tools that folks have kind of been playing around with and using those all are part of OpenAI. And I think what I have failed to do, and um, I think you know perhaps others are not aware of this either, uh, the thing that I failed to do is to be mindful of how much of what we get from AI is actually AI and how much of it is um, the work of, of humans. <laughs> um, and it turns out that 
according to Time, OpenAI um, wanted to create the ChatGPT uh, online chatbot application, um, which you'll remember I interviewed, uh, so to speak, on this show before. Uh, but in order to launch that program, they wanted to make sure that it wasn't loaded down with lots of horrible, horrible, horrible uh, text. Because if you use the internet as your platform, as your, not even platform, but as your database of, of human language, then that is going to include um, all sorts of things, uh, both good and bad. And when we say bad, it can be very, 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 very bad. Um, there, of course, it is a, uh, it is a reflection of what humans, um, are thinking and doing. And we know that, uh, on occasion that does involve, uh, violent, um, awful, uh, racist, sexist. I mean, all of the ists, uh, there's, there's text on the internet for all of that kind of stuff. And so, GPT-3, which is at the heart of ChatGPT, it is the kind of uh, the, the, the system behind ChatGPT. Um, it is full of that stuff. And what OpenAI wanted to do was make it so that people could use this without seeing a bunch of that horrible stuff. And if you have a small data set or a smaller data set, then you have people go through and basically get rid of the bad stuff so that it's not part of the training data. But if you have a huge data set, like the, you know, vast collection of text from the internet, then you actually need to have AI involved in making the AI uh, that you are wanting to respond better. So, the process uh, by do you know that's involved in doing this is essentially you have people um, find the you know the, the text that's there and then label that text and say hey this is bad uh, this is the reason why um, you know we label this text as being uh, sexist we label this text as being racist we label this text as being violent sexual imagery we label this text as being this that and the other so human beings with the ability to uh, look at something and tell what it is, uh, have to label this. And then it gets fed into the artificial intelligence that then helps to filter out that content for ChatGPT, uh, which, of course, is kind of the, the wrapper around uh, GPT-3, right? So the way that this is working, and I, I should note that it's not just OpenAI, um, there are many companies, Google, Meta, Microsoft, uh, who work with these companies. They hire out a company. In this case, uh, the one that the time was talking about is Sama, S-A-M-A. -A. Um, Sama works with, um, it, or actually it hires employees or it, it uh, has employees in Kenya and Uganda and in India. And then those employees are responsible for uh, labeling this text based on what it is. So, as an example, I have, um, you know, my data set 
and I want uh, the the data set labeled. So I uh, give Sama a packet of data, it, you know, the, the text or what have you, and then Sama has its workers look through that and say, this is this, this is that, this is this, this is that. And then Sama gives it back to me. I feed it into the system and it goes from there. Um, these workers, specifically the ones uh, in Kenya is what the story covers, um, were paid between $1.32 and $2 per hour. Of note, the, the timepiece says there's no universal minimum wage in Kenya, but at the time these workers were employed, the minimum wage, or excuse me, but at the time these workers were employed at uh, Sama, a receptionist in Nairobi was uh, earning a dollar and 52 cents per hour. So a dollar 52 was the minimum wage for a receptionist. Uh, these workers are being paid between a dollar 32 and two dollars. Um, and what they did was read and label, uh, according to uh, employees that Time interviewed, they read and labeled between 150 and 250 passages of text in a nine-hour shift. So they would sit down, they would label this, and then they would um, you know, pass that along, and it would kind of go up through the, uh, the ranks because there were quality engineers, et cetera, et cetera, that kind of worked their way up. Um, before it ever got back to OpenAI for inclusion into the the uh, engine to try and improve upon it. But this resulted in people, again, human beings who have to look through kind of the, the darkest parts of the internet and label this stuff as what it was. And, you know, I can't even really describe uh, some of what you, you should read the timepiece. It's very good and very, I think, important. Um, the some of the things that they dealt with um i mean bestiality uh and and uh of course sexual abuse hate speech violence all this kind of stuff um they would label it so that it could be excluded from chat gpt in the end um and this you know upon reading this i kind of had a moment of like wow this is really awful um obviously but then I also had to stop and have the realization that at some point, humans do need to be involved in the process. And I think that what's important here is just the knowledge of how it was being done, how it's being done. Because I can also think about the fact that this device that I have in my hand um, was made or was assembled in uh, factories that also don't have uh, the best working conditions. This uh, sweater that I'm wearing uh, for this episode uh, was probably made in a factory without the best working conditions. And so it is a very common thing. And I think um, Time's coverage of this is more about being aware of the fact that although we see this kind of fun toy that we play with, Human beings have to be involved in the process, and the human beings that OpenAI is using um, are, in some cases, uh, depending on on you know your your impression of this and, and your take on this, are being um, taken advantage of. There was um, also 
the, the one of the things that Sama talks about is that um, all employees are entitled to attend sessions with wellness counselors. So if you know they're struggling with what they're seeing or reading, they're supposed to be able to see wellness counselors. But uh, according to the employees, there was high, high, high demand, and so many of them were not able to see these counselors. And I think the most telling aspect of this is that um, Sama also started working with OpenAI, not just on text for ChatGPT, but also imagery. And it's unclear what product that was being, you know, they were working on to, to help out from OpenAI. That's, that is not in uh, the information that Time saw, but that meant seeing some really horrific imagery. And it ended up with Sama closing its contract with OpenAI eight months earlier than it had planned to. Um, so it resulted also in, because of those contracts being canceled, um, employees then talked about the fact that this was because of the nature of the content, because they were seeing um, this level of disturbing content, they were actually getting paid a bonus for doing the labeling of this stuff. So they lost their bonus. Uh, some of them lost their jobs. And uh, Sama has said that they don't, they, they're not, no longer working in, uh, in this field. In fact, let me see. Uh, and I want to quote from Sama. After numerous discussions with our global team, Sama made the strategic decision to exit all natural language processing and content moderation work to focus on computer vision data annotation solutions. We have spent the past year working with clients to transition those engagements and the exit will be complete as of March 2023. Uh, that is because before OpenAI, um, Facebook was reported to be using Sama employees to do uh, content moderation on their platform. And fe on February 14th, Time actually published a story about uh, this very thing where these folks are being used to moderate content on Facebook. So you've got two instances here of a company. I mean, this is, this was at least up to this point, the sole purpose of the company was to label content and help to improve upon an AI system. And I, I guess this is just one of those situations where knowing how the sausage gets made is important in informing um, how we use the technology, how we, appreciate the technology or don't appreciate the technology and the necessary context surrounding how it works because uh and and you know this is something that the the piece talks about is like a lot of people think it's all just magic and <laughs> and uh you know computery nonsense that makes these machines work how they do but the reason that you know the i remember there was a, a a post where someone had figured out how to get chat GPT to be blatantly racist. And they had to kind of go around the protections by, by throwing off the machine to get it to express the racism that's in its, uh, its, you know, makeup. And the fact that they had to go around the, the, the rules and the, the, guardrails that are in place does show the work that 
these folks did to make it so that it is harder for that stuff to pop up. And it does make me think about then what ChatGPT would look like if OpenAI hadn't hired this team, Sama, uh, or this company, and other companies as well, um, who all played a role in making it so that you do need to kind of work around to make it do these things. Because it's just using the stuff that we human beings have put on the internet. So yeah, uh, go read that time piece. Um, it's a, you know an exclusive piece over on time by, again, Billy uh, Perigo. And it is well worth kind of reading through the nuances of it as well, because it's got a lot of information, including uh, stuff about the contracts that uh, Time saw and how much people were making or not making, um, the overall kind of care that was given or not given to the employees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, it is uh, something I had not considered. Uh, I, I kind of thought that it was something that the internal developers at OpenAI and then us, as we use it and, and report issues, were making the changes to this. And I had not thought about a, a team of people who just have to look through hour after hour after hour, this horrible content and say, yeah, they don't want this on the platform for sure. All right, let's take a quick break and then we will come back with a little grab bag of uh, news that I wanted to discuss. Um, but I want to tell you about Thinkst Canary, who are bringing you this episode of Tech News Weekly. Most companies, and this is frightening, most companies discover they've been breached way too late. Yeah, after it's happened. <laughs> and so sometimes, you know, days after it's happened, months after it's happened. You don't want that. Things Canary fixes this in just three minutes of setup with no ongoing overhead and nearly zero false positives. You can detect attackers long before they dig in. It's no wonder why Things Canary hardware, VM, and cloud-based canaries are deployed and loved on all seven continents. I got to tell you, I want to visit the one in Antarctica. Prowling attackers look for juicy content in their targeted network. They browse Active Directory for file servers and explore file shares looking for documents. They try default passwords against network devices and web services. They scan for open services across the network. I mean, attackers know what they're doing, obviously. When they encounter a thing's canary, the services on offer are designed to solicit further investigation at which point they've betrayed themselves and your canary notifies you of the incident. So if I had a things canary on the network, it would look like, you know, a network attached storage device uh, that says like company backups. And in that company backups network attached storage device are some PDFs that include, um, I don't know, a password vault or uh, a bunch of plain text files that are supposed to be uh, employee data points or what have you. And the attackers go, ooh, that is juicy. I need that. They go there and then they've betrayed themselves. And Canary says, hey, look, they clicked on that thing they thought was what they wanted. 
But really, the whole time, it was us keeping an eye on things. You can order, configure, and deploy your canaries throughout your network. These can be hardware. They can be virtual. They can be cloud-based birds. Make one a Windows file server, another a router. Throw in a few Linux web servers while you're at it. Each one hosts realistic services and looks and acts like its namesake. Then you wait. Your things canaries run silently in the background, waiting for intruders, constantly reporting in and providing an up-to-the-minute report on their status. Even customers with hundreds of canaries receive just a handful of events per year. When an incident occurs, Thanks to Canary will alert you via email, text message, Slack notification, webhook, or old-fashioned syslog. I you said, said webhook. That means that you could set up a... A punching bag on a um, a robotic arm. So if you if the Thinks Canary detects somebody in your network, that robotic arm boom can punch you in the face and say you've been hacked, and then you hop on and make sure everything's okay. You don't have to do that. It's just just a suggestion. A uh, principal security engineer of an F fifty company says Canary has helped us detect and mitigate several incidents that could have turned into catastrophes. An alert fired by their cloned site token allowed us to identify and force a takedown of several doppelganger domains that were purchased by bad actors for the purpose of launching phishing attacks against our employees and customers. I can't recommend this product enough. You don't know what you don't know, but Canary helps you know what you need to know when it matters. By the way, for English speakers, that's doppelganger, but the original pronunciation, doppelganger. Uh, you may have heard about the Circle CI compromise recently. Most users found out about the incident directly from their Thinks Canary. Canaries work and they continue to prove themselves. So visit canary.tools slash twit and for just $7,500 per year, you'll get five canaries, your own hosted console, upgrades, support, and maintenance. And if you use the code twit in the how did you hear about us box, that will get you 10% off the price for life. We know you'll love your Thinks Canary, but if you're not happy, you can always return your Canaries with their two-month money-back guarantee for a full refund. Listen to this. We have offered a money-back refund guarantee, and in all of the years, it's been claimed zero, zero times, because Canaries add incomparable value. That's canary.tools slash twit, and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. Thank you, Thinks Canary, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, back from the break, and I've got another one of those situations where I reached out uh, this morning, and unfortunately, the person was out of town, uh, so I wasn't able to have uh, have them on, but I wanted to talk about this great re-review on The Verge from Sean Hollister um, about the Steam Deck. So if you are unaware or unfamiliar, the Steam Deck is a mobile or portable gaming device. Um, made by Steam, and it is a uh, kind of Linux-based machine that is, I like how, uh, I, I didn't realize this about it, but as uh, Sean puts it, it is roughly the power of a PlayStation 4 within this portable console device. Um, it's got your standard controls as well as touch sensitive trackpads, um, a touch screen. And I mean, this thing is kind of ridiculous in terms of what it is able to do. But when Steam first announced it, 
Um, they were kind of doing it as one of these pre-order situations where you could get it on day one when it ships, but it's going to be a little bit beta. Uh, it's going to have some rough patches. And some of us did uh, get it despite that and struggled through. And Sean Hollister was one of the people who did. But what he points out in this kind of re-review of the piece is despite the fact that it um it, it started as this this beta uh device and was really rough steam has committed to continuing to improve upon the technology and the hardware and the firmware to make something that's worth uh carrying around and i thought this was wild um what was how many hours oh uh hollister said spent 435 hours playing Steam games across three different decks, averaging well over an hour per day since it launched. 435 hours since it launched of playtime. And what has been kind of magical uh, for Sean Hollister is that along with playing it kind of in a standard way, the way that you would expect, he's also done some of the other fun stuff like using emulators, uh, streaming games from the PS5 to it, and then even uh, kind of doing some upgrades, uh, which is one of the things that I did with mine. The fan that first came with it was um, whiny (laughs) and poorly made. And so there was uh, a new and updated fan that you could install uh, that came from iFixit. So, I do want to mention, I'm going to go through some of the complaints that uh, Sean Hollister still has about the Steam Deck, but what's wild is how much this has shrunk from its original set of complaints. So some of these include uh, battery life can be short and it takes a long time to charge, 100% still a problem. Um, you You can play without having it plugged in, but if you're playing games that are uh, high graphics, you might as well just keep the thing plugged in. So that doesn't make it as portable as uh, one would expect. Um, You still can't download games without leaving the screen on, which feels like, I don't know, that's just so old school. That's like, oh, if the screen turns off, then of course the, the connection turns off too. So then you're not able to continue to download. Um, and then Bluetooth audio lag is is really bad at times. Um, you can use Bluetooth headphones with the device, but that lag can be so different from what's going on on the screen. And that obviously makes for a poor experience. I mean, here is what I said whenever I reviewed it originally. Um, it, I, it honestly did not impress me um, because I felt like... You either have a device that is portable and you make um, sacrifices to have a portable device or you have a device that is stationary and you make other sacrifices to have a device that is stationary. So if it's stationary, obviously you can't take it with you. But in return, you get a very powerful machine like a a gaming PC and a huge display and you get to play um, in the comfort of your, you know, your fancy chair. All of that is what makes kind of the stationary um, machines worth what they're worth. Then on the other hand, if you're getting a device that's supposed to be portable, um, you do give up performance, but you get longer battery life. You get comfort in the hand. You get um, 
a sort of a, a, a focus on not lower quality games, but lower graphics games, that kind of thing. This was trying to find some sort of middle ground. But in doing so, it came short on all of the things that it was supposed to be promising. So, yes, it was mobile, but it was mobile for maybe two hours at most before the battery life just gave out on it. Um, yes, it was more powerful than your mobile device, but it was not uh, playing some games without lagging that I had expected it would be able to play without lagging. So falling short on all accounts instead of finding this sweet middle ground uh, Goldilocks spot really, I think, drove it home as something that just was not ready for prime time or may never be ready for prime time because it may have just been um, you shoot the ball and you miss. Uh, but Sean Hollister says they did in the beginning shoot the ball and miss, but now... Um, it is a console that makes sense, and it is something that in the middle ground actually is worth uh, playing. And I, I agree. I think that um, the many of the concerns that I had at the beginning have been solved by different software changes or firmware changes that the company has made, including uh, dropping 60 frames per second playback to 40 frames per second playback. Um, there's a complaint, obviously, that 30 frames per second is just too slow if you're playing games and it doesn't look as good, it doesn't feel as good, but 60 frames per second, oof, you start to get some lag on different games. Turns out, and this is, I, I learned this from this piece as well, 40 frames per second is actually about halfway between 30 frames and 60 frames when it comes to all of the weird math that's happening. So it feels faster than 30 frames, but it doesn't lag like 60 frames. And so you do feel like you're playing a game and that it all just kind of works together. Um, many of the games that didn't originally work with the Steam Deck are now far more compatible with the Steam Deck. And that, I think, is a big thing. Uh, now, if you go into the library, you can see lots of games that were made to be played on it. And there is incentive for third parties like Microsoft and Sony to provide compatibility for games on its platforms that work on the Steam Deck as well. So yeah, um, I was really happy to see this re-review of the Steam Deck and see that it has um, earned more of its mid middle ground title than, than it originally did. And that as, uh, you know, I, I think Steam continues to work on this and see where this can go, it'll be fascinating to see what happens. So... That uh, is the first grab bag piece. Um, the second grab bag piece is a quick little story that kind of shocked me. Um, yesterday, at f just after 5 p.m., um, which if you've been in journalism or have heard journalists talk about this, um, the, the best time of day to release something that you don't want a lot of people to talk about is after 5 p.m. Uh, and then if you can, make it 5 p.m. on a Friday. <laughs> or excuse me, after 5 p.m. on a Friday. Amazon didn't wait until after 5 p.m. on a Friday. They just went halfway through. And I think that's because 
<sighs> it was already enough of like a, I know what you really mean when you say this situation that we all kind of went, okay, so you did it after 5 p.m., but at least it wasn't a Friday. Uh, Amazon announced that it is closing down its Amazon Smile service. If you've never heard of Amazon Smile, um, Amazon Smile is this this uh, feature, I guess is the best way to put it, that lets you donate to your favorite charities um, just by shopping on Amazon. And so in effect, whenever you make a purchase, some small, 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 small percentage of what you buy goes to the charity of your choice. Um, I remember years ago uh, setting mine up for the ASPCA and Ever since then, every time I've made a purchase on Amazon, some small amount goes to the ASPCA. And then once, I think it's every quarter uh, or every half of a year, um, I get a notification that says, hey, this is how much money you all have donated to this corporation or to this organization. And I remember the last one was like $750,000 or something like that total. Not just for me, to be clear. Um, and I liked it. You know, I, for me, it was, it was nice to know that that donation was being made, but also it, uh, whenever I was feeling guilty about using Amazon as much as I did, then I also had that little bit of a, of a relief, like, Hey, at least I'm helping out with the ASPCA. Unfortunately, um, Amazon is now shuttering or sunsetting this feature. And what was frustrating to me um, was how Amazon announced this change. Again, not only that it was after 5 p.m., but the way that they put it, which was like, hey, we're just not happy with how little of an impact this has made. So we think that we just want to close this down. We thought that by now we'd be doing a lot more. We'd be making a lot more of an impact. But not enough of y'all are using the service or what have you. So we're just going to not do this anymore. Oh, and by the way, here are 12 things that Amazon does regularly that makes us a great company who cares about people and the environment and uh, education and all this other stuff. So please don't be mad. Okay, bye. That was essentially what the email was. And I think that it, just like this this piece from uh, Bar Barbara Kresnoff uh, over on The Verge points out, the, the headline of it is, I wish Amazon had been honest about why it's sunsetting Amazon Smile. I feel the same. Ultimately, it probably costs them money to work out the, you know, the, the logistics and set up this infrastructure to make it so that you know, these donations are calculated and that the money gets sent to the right places and da, 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 da. And so you end up getting $750,000 to the ASPCA. But what does that cost Amazon in going all that way and making all that happen? And then you've got all these different organizations that get listed into it, et cetera. And it's like, why don't you just be honest and say, don't, don't try to make it into something that it's not. I understand not wanting to come out and say, we don't want to pay for this anymore or whatever the, the reason happens to be, but to say, we just thought we would have made more of an impact by now. Because the fact is, if you're making an impact, you're making an impact. So an impact has happened. And ask any body of water in any part of the world 
what an impact means at wearing down rock. Eventually, that rock becomes a river or a canyon, or it is, you know, a, a, a huge divot in the ground. Like those small little impacts add up over time. So whether you're making a tiny impact or a huge impact, that doesn't matter. It's the fact that you're making an impact. And that's what was frustrating to me about this. And then to layer it on with like, even though we're giving up, ha <laughs> uh, sorry, someone in the chat said, you rock, Micah Sargent, get it? You rock. <laughs> um, and so even though uh, they're doing all these other things, it doesn't, it doesn't stop the fact that, you know, removing this and trying to, to couch it in all this special language of why they're closing it down ultimately doesn't, doesn't add up and doesn't make sense other than we just really don't want to deal with this anymore. But we can't tell you that because that'll make us look bad. So instead, we're just going to say, we just wish we'd made more of an impact. Well, me too. <sighs> Alas, um, Amazon is sunsetting Amazon Smile, I believe, in March. Um, but the company is going to... Let me try to find the email because there was something kind of interesting about uh, what they said. Um Ah, here we go. So, uh, no, I'm sorry. It's not even March. Uh, February 20th, 2023 is when Amazon Smile will be fully wound down. Um, I want to read this directly. To help charities that have been a part of the Amazon Smile program with this transition, we will be providing them with a one-time donation equivalent to three months of what they earned in 2022 through the program. And they will also be able to accrue additional donations until the program officially closes in February. So any money that I'm sending to the ASPCA, for example, between now and February 20th will still go to them. They will also get a donation uh, equivalent to three months of what they earned in this past year. Um, so, yeah, I again, disappointing, but ultimately not surprising. In fact, whenever I saw just the e the notification for the email headline and it said update on Amazon smile, I already knew what it was going to say. And, uh, I was not surprised. So that is my grab bag of other stories, which brings us to the end of this episode of tech news weekly. Um, I believe Jason will be back next week. Uh, but until then, you just got me. Thank you, of course, uh, for tuning into this episode. We publish this show every Thursday at twit.tv slash TNW. That's where you can go to subscribe to the show in audio and video formats, twit.tv slash TNW. Of course, if you want to watch the show live, which we record every Thursday starting at 11 a.m. Pacific, you go to twit.tv slash live. Um, now's the time where I mention the Club Twit program, uh, which you can join to get ad-free episodes of all the shows on the twit network uh starting at seven bucks a month or 84 dollars per year when you join the club by going to twit.tv slash club twit on top of ad free episodes of every show you also get access to the twit plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else and access to the very cool club twit discord that's a place to go where you can chat with your fellow club twit members all the time and in all sorts of uh streams and shows and topics and content. There's a lot going on, uh, on in the club twit discord and it is always hopping and popping uh, twit.tv slash club twit starting at $7 a month, $84 a year. I say starting at because some folks said, Hey, I'd actually like to give you more than just $7 a month. Can you do that? 
And so Patrick Delahanty flipped a switch and suddenly folks were able to uh, provide or, you know, pay more if they wanted to. And I think part of the reason for that is because we continue to make it more and more valuable. Uh, There are three shows, the Untitled Linux Show, which is a show all about Linux, uh, Paul Therott's Hands-On Windows program, which is a short format show all about Windows tips and tricks, and my Hands-On Mac show, which is a show that is filled with tips and tricks regarding all of Apple's various devices. And I mentioned this before I got the complaint. Why don't you just call it Hands-On Apple if it's not just about Mac? Well, if you want to talk to Apple's various lawyers and say, hey, this company wants to use your name for their podcast title and then have them shake their fingers sternly at you, be my guest. But until then, hands-on Mac is going to have to do. So that is the name of the show that you can get there as well. All part of the uh, $7 a month, $84 a year subscription. So thank you to those of you who have done so. Thank you to those of you who are considering it. And thank you to those of you who have told your friends, that they too should consider it. Um, if you want to follow me online, I'm at Micah Sargent on many a social media network, or you can head to chihuahua.coffee, that's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Uh, check me out on Thursdays for Hands on Mac, which publishes a little later today, if you are a Club Twit member. On Sundays uh, for Ask the Tech Guys, the show I host with Leo Laporte, where we take your tech questions live and answer them. And on Tuesdays for iOS Today, which I co-host with Rosemary Orchard, where we talk all things iOS, tvOS, HomePod OS, iPad OS, all the OSs. Um, thank you so much to uh, John Ashley, who without him, this show would not be possible. Also, Burke, um, who is back and makes sure that the guests sound and look as good as they can. And uh, I, I really appreciate that. That is a... Uh, just an absolute necessity. Um, And so I'm thankful to you and anyone else who happens to be in the studio working today for the hard work that you all do. And uh, I and Jason will see you next week on Tech News Weekly. Goodbye. Hey, I'm Rod Pyle, Editor-in-Chief of Ad Aster Magazine, and each week I join with my co-host to bring you This Week in Space, the latest and greatest news from the final frontier. We talk to NASA chiefs, space scientists, engineers, educators, and artists, and sometimes we just shoot the breeze over what's hot and what's not in space, books, and TV. And we do it all for you, our fellow true believers. So whether you're an armchair adventurer or waiting for your turn to grab a slot in Elon's Mars rocket, join us on This Week in Space and be part of the greatest adventure of all time. 